Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, I apologize uh, to everybody who has been waiting patiently for my next podcast. I know last week I went the entire week without doing a podcast, which is unusual. But if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that I was on a cruise ship all last week. I was on the Real Estate Guys cruise. The internet connections on a ship are very slow, particularly the upload speeds. Plus, I was very busy, so I really decided to take a week off from podcasting. And you know, there really wasn't that much that happened last week. The markets uh, were overall quiet, although the U.S. stock market rallied. Uh, Gold didn't do much. The dollar didn't do much. No real earth-shattering news. So I didn't see any reason why I couldn't wait till I was back on shore, which is what I'm doing. And in fact, I was so busy today that it's very late on a Monday night, and I'm just trying to get this podcast recorded today. First of all, I'll talk about some of the stuff that happened last week. We did get the release of the FOMC minutes that came out. And in fact, after the minutes came out, we had a pretty big drop in the price of gold. You know, gold did manage to get all the way up, I think, to about um, 1365-ish during the week before selling off. And I think the Fed minutes were a catalyst to get gold to sell off. Of course, it can't sell off very much really can't get much below 1330. There is a lot of buying that comes in down there. The the uh, read on the minutes were that they were hawkish in that the Fed was signaling that it thinks the economy is going to keep strengthening and inflation is going to keep rising. Well, at least they're half right because the economy isn't going to keep strengthening, but inflation will keep rising. And in fact, they're not even half right because they're right that inflation is going to go up. But it's going to go up by a lot more than they think. So even the part they got right, they really got wrong. And we did get some inflation numbers, you know, official measures of inflation that the government released last week. And if you look particularly at the producer price index, you jumped up, I think, core producer prices 
rose at the fastest pace in about seven years. And if you look at a chart, we're very close to a breakout of resistance on core uh, PPI. Core CPI also up, I think, a little better than expected. But this is just the beginning of a trend. In fact, during the week, oil price had made new highs. We got above $67 a barrel. So we're continuing to get closer and closer to 70, then eventually 80 and 100. And it's not just oil prices that are rising. It's pretty much prices across the board for commodities that are going to be rising. But the Fed is not going to be able to deliver the rate hikes that the market is expecting. And again, it's the expectation of, of more rate hikes that is what is keeping a lid on the price of gold. But it's only a matter of time before the market blows the lid off and the price of gold goes up. In fact, gold prices were relatively flat today. We're just below 1350. The last I checked, we're 1347. So not much movement in the price of gold, but it looks to me like we're continuing uh, to uh, trade sideways in anticipation or in advance of a breakout. The same thing happening with the dollar in the other direction. The dollar continues to be weak, although it is not breaking down, but it is not recovering any of its losses. The dollar index again today closing below uh, 89.50. So on the weaker end of where it's been, just binding its time, waiting for another decline. In fact, even though the FOMC had a rosy assessment of the outlook uh, for the economy, the uh, Atlanta Fed twice you know, reduced its estimates uh, for Q1 GDP. Last week, they went down to 2%, and then today, they went down to one9 So here we are again, back below 2%, for the official estimate for first quarter GDP. And you got to believe that Q1 is probably the high watermark for the year. That Q2 is going to be weaker than whatever the number is for Q1. Because Q1 had all the hype in it, all the anticipation of the tax cuts, the big build in inventory. Despite all of that, we're barely getting any growth in Q1. And I think because we had to pull growth forward from Q2 in order to get a pathetic 1.9 or wherever it's going to be for Q1, then Q2 is going to be a lot lower because we've pulled that growth forward. And that just blows up this whole bullish scenario of 4 or 5% economic growth. And remember, it was the strong economic growth that was going to make up for the added deficits that were created by the tax cuts. Well, if the growth doesn't materialize, then not only will the deficits you know, be bigger, but they're going to be much bigger uh, than anybody uh, imagines. In fact, while I was away, I noticed an article that pointed out that the uh, deficit had been $600 billion for the last six months. $600 billion in new debt, in the last six months, we are now borrowing $100 billion per month. That is a $1.2 trillion run rate for uh, deficit spending. Now, of course, whatever we spent in the last six months, 
We're going to spend more in the next six months because of the effect of rising interest rates. As more of the bonds mature during the next six months, they're going to have to be rolled over at even higher rates than what the, what we got rolling them over in the prior six months. Plus, you've got the increased government spending. you got the tax cuts. So who knows? I mean, maybe the next six months, it won't be $600 billion, but $800 billion. And of course, if we end up in recession, we could spend a trillion dollars in the next six months. Who knows how much we're going to do? So these deficits are blowing through the roof. And this is going to be the driving force in moving the dollar substantially lower and moving gold uh, substantially higher. In fact, we got some more economic news today on retail sales. Remember, retail sales had dropped for three consecutive months. So it would have been maybe unprecedented for retail sales to have been down again. Uh, But we got the March retail sale number, and it was actually up more than expected, up 0.6 tenths of a percent. They were looking for 0.4. But if you back out autos and gasoline, instead of being up 0.5, which was the expectation, we were only up 0.3. And so what that tells you is that consumers are spending more money on gas. Now, they're not spending more money on gas because they're driving more. They're probably spending more money on gas because gas is more expensive. And so if expensive gas is the reason that retail sales are rising, that ain't good news, right? Unless you're selling the gas, right? Unless you're in the oil business, the fact that it's costing Americans more uh, to fill up their tank is not a good thing for the economy. And I expect that to continue. But ultimately, as consumers are putting more money into their gas tank, they're going to be putting less money someplace else. So what we spend on gas, we can't spend on other things. And it's the people who are selling other things that are going to suffer. And, you know, we have a lot more people employed in industries that sell things other uh, than gas. Uh, So ultimately, higher energy prices are going to be a drain on most consumers. Obviously, not all consumers, uh, but most consumers And I bet, again, we're going to go back to weakening numbers in the future. After all, after three negative months, we're bound to have another one. And again, who knows what we're going to have? I mean, they might revise this number lower uh, when we get the revisions. But, you know, probably the biggest news of last week, other than the fact, almost forgot, you know, that we sent cruise missiles into Syria, right? I mean, although the market rallied today, the Dow was up better than 200 points, although we did close just over 100 points from the high. I wonder if the market rallied just based on the relief that, you know, whatever we did in Syria, we didn't do more, that it was kind of like a minimal uh, response. I mean, we knew that something was coming. And the fact that what came wasn't as bad as maybe people thought it might have been. Maybe there was some kind of relief rally there in the market. But apart from uh, the, the, the fact that we were you know, bombing Syria, the most important news, I think, that came out of the week was the announcement by House Speaker Paul Ryan that he would be resigning his House seat at the end of, of his term, right, which ends, uh, you know, this year. Now, this is big news as far as I'm concerned, because the question is, why would he decide to resign? I mean, he's the Speaker of the House of Representatives. I mean, that is technically the third highest office in the land, right? Because if the vice president and the president both die, 
the speaker becomes president. So you're number three, right? You're two heartbeats away from the White House. It's a very powerful, prestigious job. Why would Paul Ryan resign? And the most likely reason is that he thinks he's going to lose the job anyway. Right? I think if he believed that the Republicans were going to retain control of the House of Representatives, he would stay. But obviously, he wants to distance himself from the loss, right? He doesn't want to be the guy who loses the House of Representatives, especially if he has, you know, a bigger career in mind. I mean, you have to believe that Ryan may want to be president someday. He may want to run for president and he may not want to be associated with the loss of the congressional majority, to the Democrats. So maybe by resigning and now letting some other guy be uh, become speaker, and now that guy loses the House, well, you know, it's not Ryan's fault, right? Somebody else blew it, right? He's kind of abandoning a sinking ship before it sinks. And that is consistent with what I've been thinking is going to happen all along, that the Republicans are going to lose control of Congress. But even beyond that, even if the Republicans don't lose control of Congress this year, they'll probably lose it in 2020 when they lose the White House. And maybe Ryan doesn't want to be associated with that loss either. Maybe he wants to distance himself from the problems that he sees coming, not only in the Republican Party, but in the country knowing that all those problems are going to be blamed on the Republican Party. And if he is the Speaker of the House, if he is leading the Republican Party at that time, then obviously the blame is going to fall heavily on him. So what he wants to do is put a lot of distance between himself and that disaster. And by resigning now and not seeking re-election, he can go away from Washington, allow everything to happen, right? All the bad stuff to happen, allow everything to collapse and then come back fresh, you know, maybe not even in 2020, maybe he's thinking 2024 or something. He's still a young guy. He can come back in the future and say, hey, I'm the outsider. Hey, let me clean this mess up because obviously he has high name recognition, right? He was the speaker, so he's got a good resume. He just needs to get away from a while, right? Get out of Dodge, get out of town, you know, do some other things to keep his name in the paper, but to disassociate himself from what's going on in Washington now and what's likely to go on in the future. And I think people are downplaying the uh, the significance of that resignation and that political move. But to me, it really speaks volumes and validates what I've been saying regarding my fears of the loss of the Republican majority in Congress and then the loss of the White House. You know, another thing that happened while I was on my cruise was a big rally in Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin, which had been trading below 7,000. I mean, it didn't quite, I don't think it ever broke 6,500, at least on the exchange I was looking at. But then all of a sudden, one day it spiked from about 7000 to 8000 I think it got as high as 8500 maybe, but that $1,000 spike took place you know, in about 5 or 10 minutes. I mean, 15% move in 5 or 10 minutes. I mean, what market moves that much that quickly? 
I mean, I know everybody wants to talk about, oh, the gold market is manipulated. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But clearly, the Bitcoin market is manipulated because there's no other explanation for that bigger rise in that short of time other than manipulation. I mean, it's no way that somebody all of a sudden decided they had to buy all those Bitcoins in a five or 10 minute window, right? I mean, the volume had been pretty thin. The price action had been pretty weak. If I legitimately wanted to buy a bunch of Bitcoin, I could have bought them and I could have just been a little bit more patient. And instead of buying all the Bitcoins I wanted in five or 10 minutes, I could have spread my buys out over a few hours or maybe even a few days and I would have got a much better price, right? There's, I wouldn't have had to run the price up to 8,000 and change when it was trading at 7,000. So to me, the reason that the buying took place was to drive the price higher. That was the goal. Maybe they waited for a time where the market looked thin, where there weren't a lot of offers, and then they ran in, and who knows how many individuals were involved. My guess is there were several people that coordinated and decided we're going to try, and maybe they're buying and selling to each other. Who knows what they're doing, right, to get the market to move higher. But that was their goal, right? They wanted to got, kind of get a higher price just to kind of create some kind of excitement, some kind of enthusiasm, get people to think, aha, there's a bottom, you got to buy, it's going to go even higher. Hey, it could jump another $1,000 a coin in the next five or 10 minutes. It just smells completely like a manipulated market to me. I seriously doubt that this rally is going to last because they're not going to be able to continuously manipulate the price higher when ultimately the goal of everybody who's manipulating, and I'm convinced of that, the goal is to get out. Right. That's why they want the price higher. They want the price higher so they can sell. And so they have to generate more buying. And I'm not sure how much they had to buy in order to get the price higher. You know, sometimes, you know, if you're playing poker, you have to lose a few hands in order to win big. Right. So this could be part of the strategy. OK, we'll buy a little. And of course, you know, they're they're on paper. They're ahead on some of their buys. You know, some of the buys they made it 7,100, 7,200, 7,300. If we're at 8,000, they're ahead there. They may be behind on what they bought at 8,400, 8,500, whatever, but they may still have a small gain. But of course, now they have to unload those coins to actually have a real gain, right? And I think they're in the process of doing that, right? But they're hoping that by bidding up the price so quickly, they'll bring some new buyers, you know, into the game so that they can unload even more. So I don't think there was anything significant about that rally you know, to me, it's still a bear market rally. And I think the same thing is going on with the stock market. Yeah, the stock market has rallied a little bit. The Dow is back above what 24,000. But to me, the rallies, again, looks like a bear market rally. Now, technically, yes, we're not in a bear market yet because we haven't dropped 20%, although many, many stocks individually are clearly in bear markets based on how much they've fallen. But the market overall technically is still not in a bear market. But again, as I've said, if ultimately we're down 20, 30 percent, then it's a bear market right now. We're just too early in the bear market to know that we're in a bear market. Just like, you know, we're not in a recession until we have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. So in the first month of a recession, you know, you're not in a recession yet because we haven't had six consecutive months. But if it turns out that we have six consecutive months, then the first month was a recession. 
It's just that nobody acknowledged it because officially it wasn't a recession. So no one is acknowledging this bear market yet because officially we're not in one. And I still think the only way we avoid one is if the Fed comes in and completely does a 180. They're going to have to go from hiking rates to cutting rates. They're going to have to go from we're going to you know, shrink our balance sheet to we're doing QE4. That's what the Fed is going to have to do to prevent a bear market. Now, they may end up doing it in response to a bear market, trying to prevent the bear market from getting any worse. Right? It all depends on how long the Fed can hold out in this gigantic game of chicken. And as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't really matter. I just know eventually, you know, they're going to blink. They're going to have to, especially when you've got the politics. You've got this election, right, in November, and they're going to do everything they can to try to, you know, put as much lipstick on this pig of an economy leading up to that election. And again, if I'm right on what's going to happen and we end up with the Democrats taking over, the first thing they're going to do Uh, in the new year, in 2019, is they're going to pass a massive make-work infrastructure stimulus-type bill that Donald Trump is going to have to sign. And especially if the economy is in a recession at the time he is given a stimulus bill to sign, there's no way he's going to veto it, especially since he signed the stimulus that the Republicans passed, which was tax cuts for the rich, How can he be against all this spending for the poor and the middle class? And he's not going to be able to say, well, we can't do it because it's going to blow a hole in the deficit because he, he doesn't care about the deficit. He didn't care about it under Republican Congress. So why should he care about it under a Democratic Congress? He won't. So we are, you know, in the perfect storm, I think, of a massive explosion in deficits, not just the budget deficits, but the trade deficits. You know, these uh, tariffs or a trade war is only going to compound the problem. We've got the economy weakening and we've got the dollar teetering on the brink of collapse. We've got gold about to break out and the bond market is in the same thing, right? The bond market, we had a big spike up in yields and now we're just kind of going sideways. The three major markets, bonds, gold and the dollar, are all moving sideways, getting ready to continue their most recent moves, which for gold is up, for the dollar is down, and for bonds are down, which means interest rates are up, and it's one, two, three strikes, you're out. Now, another thing, too, that is still uh, frustrating a bit is, you know, while I was on the cruise, I get some emails, and again, today, we still have a lot of uh, Euro-Pacific capital investors throwing in the towel, right, closing their accounts. Now, I'm happy to report we're getting a larger number of new accounts. So there are people now who are thinking right, right? And we are still having people adding to their accounts. But it is really frustrating to me to see so many people when all the evidence is so abundantly clear that everything that we've been planning on and everything we've been positioning for over the past several years, when it's so obvious from the economic fundamentals, I mean, forget about looking at the markets. The markets are going to fall in line. But you look at what's going on in the big picture, looking at what's about to happen, right? Uh, you can't conclude anything other than the fact that this strategy is going to pay off big. But, you know, I wanted to talk about one conversation I had today in particular with a client who was closing his account, who was a broker for 25 years. That's what he did for a living. 
In fact, he even worked at Lehman Brothers, which is a firm I worked at, so I don't think we worked there at the same time. But 25 years, this guy was a stockbroker. And so he has an account with me, and he let his representative know that you know he was going to be closing his account because over the last five years, he hasn't been happy with the performance, and, and so he's closing his account. And so I gave the guy a call, but I happened to notice that he had two accounts with us. He had this one wrap account that I've been managing in my mutual funds, and he had another account that only had U.S. stocks in it, about you know maybe at 10, 10 or so different U.S. stocks. I'm sure that they were all stocks that he picked himself. Um, and I'm not sure if we bought them for him or if he transferred them in, but he had an account that had all U.S. stocks. And of course, the account was up, right? That account was positive. His account with me was slightly down. Uh, so he was doing better, uh, certainly, in his U.S. portfolio. But I took a look at both accounts starting in uh, January of 2016. And it turns out that over that period of time, the account I was managing was beating the account he was managing in U.S. stocks by 40% more gains, right, as a percent. I forget what the two were. Not, not that it was up an additional 40%, but let's say, let's say his, uh, his, his, uh, his own account was up 10% and the, our, my account was up 14%. That 4% would be... 40% more than 10%. Those aren't the numbers. The numbers were actually high, much higher for both accounts, but I'm just, you know, illustrating this point. So I noticed that my account was doing, the one I was managing, was doing much better over the last two years, not the last five years, but just the last two years than the account he was managing himself. And so, you know, my, my thought was, hey, wait a minute, you're doing the wrong thing. Instead of, you know, closing the account I'm managing, you should close the account you're managing yourself. Recognize that the trend has changed don't look at the last five years, just look at the last two years, right? And so I had a conversation with this guy, but I couldn't convince him. He couldn't get, you know, get past the fact that over the last five years, uh, the returns weren't good. Even though they were very good, and he admitted that for the last two years, they weren't good for the past five, and five years was his time horizon, that if you don't do a good job over five years, then, you know, he closes the account. And, you know, this is a guy who was a professional broker. This was his career. And if he can't see this, I mean, no wonder so many people who have never been in the industry are making the same market timing mistake. I mean, I try to explain to this guy that during the five years he's had an account, for the first four of those five years, a dollar was going up, right? Gold was going down. Commodities were going down. He had a portfolio of foreign stocks, gold stocks, commodity stocks. How does he expect to make money in that portfolio during that environment. Only the last year, the only year the dollar went down during those five years was last year. That was it. Yet despite the fact that the dollar went up in 2016, his account still made money in 2016, and then it made money again in 2017. So I was trying to point out, hey, the situation has changed. Your account didn't do well during five years when the dollar was in a bull market, but how do you think the account's going to perform over the next five years if the dollar is in a bear market? Also, you know, you were in the U.S. stock market over the past five years. That was a bull market. What if the next five years are a bear market? So if the next five years include a bear market in the dollar and a bear market in stocks, obviously the portfolio that I'm managing is going to do much better in that environment than the environment that we had over the last five years. But this guy couldn't figure this out. Right? I could not, no matter how much I tried, 
I could not convince this guy. And believe me, I mean, I, you know, I, I use all the logic that I could use. Uh, and at the end of the day, he, he couldn't hear anything that I had to say because he couldn't get over the fact that, yes, but over the last five years, you know, and no matter how much gains potentially we could get in the following five years, it, none of that matters. And so to me, I mean, this guy is going to take the money that he had with me and he's just going to buy more of the same U.S. stocks that he already owns. Now, here is the problem. His U.S. account right now has gains, right, because of the gains that he had over the past five years, even though over the past two, uh, they, they haven't been as strong as, as what he would have had in, in, uh, in, in, my, in my account. But my fear is that he's going to end up losing most, if not all, of those gains that he used to have in the U.S. stock market in the bear market. He's going to surrender the gains from the bull market in the bear market. And to the extent that he doesn't, to the extent that any of those gains are not lost, it's going to be completely a function of a weak dollar, right? Inflation is going to be so high, the dollar is going to be so weak that the U.S. stock market might not go down. But in terms of real purchasing power, it will collapse, right? Because the only way that the Fed can prevent or mitigate a bear market is by sacrificing the dollar in the process. But of course, if the Fed sacrifices the dollar, then the portfolio he currently has with me would take off. I mean, we would, we would have massive gains in a dollar crisis. If the dollar were to lose a significant amount of its value, and the result of that would be a breakout in the price of gold, a big move in the, in the price of commodities in general, a general movement of assets globally out of U.S. stocks uh, into foreign stocks and emerging markets. Those are all of the things that would drive returns over the next five years in this guy's account that I'm managing, but he would be missing out on all that because he's fixated on what happened in the past instead of thinking about what's likely to happen in the future.